Divorce and separation. Does it really have to have a negative impact on your boy? We are going to find out more in this episode with a psychologist, a dad, and co-author of the book, F Divorced, a science-based guide to piecing yourself together after your life implodes. Oh, and he's also divorced. Stay tuned. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison. Guess what? It's cold and flu season, and we're in the middle of a pandemic. If you want to give your boys' bodies the best possible chance of fighting off germs, consider supporting his immune system with Haya Health Chewable Vitamins. You know, boys don't always eat so healthy. Their diet is not so balanced. So tilt the odds in their favor with Haya Health. Use our discount code on boys to get 50% off your first order. Go to HayaHealth.com and use that discount code. Now to on boys. Divorce was hard on my boys. When I got divorced a little bit more than a decade ago, uh, our boys were three, six, nine, and 11. 11, as some of you know, is pretty terrible critical age. Anyway, you add in a divorce, yuck. It was hard on the boys. It was hard on me. It was not a pleasant time in our lives. But contrary to all of the many things that I read in the meantime, that basically said that children of divorce do terribly and single parents are bad for boys and boys especially are likely to suffer. Guess what? We are all okay. We're fine. I am in a healthy relationship. I am married to another man. Their dad is married to another woman. Our children spent plenty of time with both parents. They had two houses to mess up instead of just one. Uh, And everybody is okay. Do we have our issues? Sure, we have our issues because we're human, but I really don't think that divorce ruined anybody's life. That said, we know that uh, divorce can be very challenging. Divorce, co-parenting, blended families, particularly challenging for boys and moms helping boys. And so we brought a guest on today to help us navigate all of this. With us today is Patrick Markey. He is a psychologist, he is a dad, he is an author, and in the trenches experienced all of this. And his latest book, I'm not going to give you the full title, but it has some asterisks in it, and it's F Divorce. (laughs) And it is the book I wish I had when I was going through my divorce. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you for having me. So sadly, this is a subject that many of us come to because it just gets thrust into our lives and then we have to figure out what do we do? 
how do we make the best of this terrible disruptive situation uh first things first help us get past this idea that if we are going through some relationship that we are going to forever ruin our children yeah i mean what you said at the start is basically the book i mean i I, i'm kind of done i mean i mean well yeah So send your royalties my way, sir. Everybody, every divorce, every family, every binuclear family is different. So there's there's never going to be a one size fits all type of story we can tell, but we can tell stories of what tends to happen. And your description is perfect. That on average, large meta analyses when we look at psychological adjustment of children after divorce, we find a very, very tiny effect. Uh, less than 1% of the variance in psychological adjustment can be explained by divorce. And we can go into details on you know, certain things that do put some people at slightly more risk and so forth. But by far, it's not great. So this is not saying that, that children love divorce or children are, are happy with divorce, that it's a terrible thing that happens at a moment. Um, but for most children and most grownups, uh, it's a it's not a moment that's necessarily going to define them. Um, it's a part of their lives. It's going to be part of them forever, but it's not going to be something that's going to set them on a path that of doom or anything that you typically that we typically hear in the media associated with divorce. I have to chime in here. Divorce here. Um, I, my kids were two girls. My oldest was in her first year of college and my sec, uh, the younger one was a junior in high school. So much older. I've been divorced for, gosh, 16 years now, and they're in their 30s. They're fine. But their reflection back at this, and I offer this to our listeners with younger kids, is my kids really saw how much I thrived post-divorce, how much their dad thrived post-divorce, and how we are, one of my daughters said, you know, you're just, you're, you're so much better apart than you were together. Like, ooh. Yeah, thriving is possible. And and I will say, you know, for the parents, for the for me as a woman, I mean, I got married when I was 19. So and Jen did too. Also. Jen did too. <laughs> so so one of my alike. major achievements in life so far is two of my boys are already past that age and unmarried. So like something I accomplished. I, I felt that also when my girls got past 19. It's like, yes, good. So there is a world of possibility that opens up post-divorce. I want to talk for a moment about the the mess though, right? Yeah. For a lot of us, whether we saw it coming or not, one of the biggest challenges that we are dealing with as the parents, likely the largest disruption in our lives, and we care about our kids, so we want to help our kids through this, and we're all in a heightened emotional state. What kind of advice, reassurance can you give us on that? Yeah, I mean, so when we look at, and I, actually I, I should put in here too, I'm also a divorcee. I'm part of, I'm part of your club. Our book, um, F Divorce, is actually written by uh, Dr. Erica Slaughter, who's, who's my, my wife, my current wife, though I'm 
my last wife, probably. Um, we were both divorcees previously. We, when we uh, had gotten divorced, I had gotten divorced. I've been divorced for about eight years now, and she had. He's been divorced about six years now. And when we first got divorced, or when I got divorced, I started dating and so forth. And she got divorced, and we hung out as divorced friends. And then one thing led to another, and then you know we entered into a relationship with each other. But the interesting part is our world is also tightly intertwined with my children's, um, my ex-wife and their new and their stepfather. She's remarried as well. And we live a block from each other. We are workers in a, fa- in a, rela- in a family relationship. We're not friends in the traditional sense, but we have a very healthy relationship. But kind of like what you're saying, Jen, we bicker, we fight, we're humans, you know, COVID added a whole new layer of, of negotiations. Indeed. I mean, and in a normal family, you see that as well. A normal family, look at the terms I'm using, That's terrible for me. Let's pause there for a second. That stigma is so ingrained. The three of us having this conversation, we have all personally experienced divorce. We all have personally discovered that it's not a moral failing. It's a thing that happens that families can come in all kinds of shapes, sizes, conglomerations. You know, you mentioned being workers in a family and yet this idea of normal being Mm. married mom and dad in one house is so powerful. No, it is. I mean, I wrote a book on it and I still use the term, right? So I mean, and I'm a a member of what I would then call an abnormal family, I guess, but we would call ourselves a, a binuclear, a blended family. Everyone likes different terms. But you're right. The family structures have completely changed across time in that now, actually, if we look at what's a normal statistically, what is a traditional family slowly becoming less normal? And that's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing that it's, you know, it's just basically what what's happening in the world. But back to your question about the children or the boys in this circumstance, what are the things that kind of might be cues that could cause more issues in divorce? And there's five broad things. And we talk about each one of them in turn or kind of take it slow. I'll tell you the five broad things and you can Mm -hmm. kind of how you want to go about it. One is there's a giant financial impact that happens with divorce that you're essentially taking two, you're taking one household and doubling the expenses all of a sudden. So just financially, it becomes troublesome. And that's not including if it's messy and there's lawyers and things of that sort. There's peer relationships with the children, which has a big impact potential self-blame of the children, uh, the relationship that you have with your partner or your ex-partner, I should say, and then your general parenting styles of how you're raising your children, how you're interacting with your children and so forth. That, again, in general, people, it's a small impact on the average child. But the way I like to kind of think of this is like allergies. That For most people, mm. peanut butter is totally fine. No problem at all. It's delicious. It's wonderful. But for some people with certain pre-existing conditions, they could be have some troubling outcomes. And divorce is the same way, that for most kids, it's not going to be great, but they're going to get through it. But for some children with certain environmental uh, uh, circumstances, they might be more at risk for experiencing some problems. I don't want to go super in-depth into the financial part, but I will share in the, in, in the interest of transparency and support. Wow, that was devastating for me because at that point in my life, I was primarily an at-home parent. I was doing some freelance writing, but that was the nice-to-have money. In the year prior to my divorce, 
the most I had made as a writer was $21,000 gross. And now suddenly I am supporting a household with four children and I'm not going to get into child support or any of that stuff. I will say that it was a huge struggle. I will say that for a while I was on food stamps, that I had assistance with heating and that I needed all of that to get through. And I share that because listeners, if that is your experience, you're not alone. You do what you need to do to get through. And I hope you can find the support that you need to get through that part because the financial part can cripple you and make it very hard to deal with all of those other things. In fact, one thing that some people have argued is that when we look at that small effect in divorce on, on, on psychological adjustment, there has been arguments that that may be completely driven by the financial issue because, and it's unfortunate, but because socioeconomic status is so strongly related to all kinds of outcomes, like you have better, typically better educational opportunities, you know, better food, better whatever, that the moment you kind of essentially reduce it down, and no matter what your level of income was before, it's certainly going to drop. Because again, mm-hmm. you're splitting, even if it's completely down the middle, everything gets split in half, your expenses increase twice. So, mm-hmm. so you're going to have, have uh, less opportunity. And so there has been some, some pretty convincing arguments that that might be the one thing that's really the driving force. Now, again, we're not sure if that's the only thing yet, but there are people that have made that argument. When it gets to the things that are under our control and the things that parents try to control and the things that frustrate us, it's so often the relationship with the other parent and differences in parenting styles. And that's an issue when you're in the same house and now you're divorced or you're, you're blending families. How do we do that in a way that's healthier for our children, while allowing <laughs> ourselves to be human, because we're not going to do this perfectly, are we, Janet? No, we're not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you said it right. I mean, so you have two relationships here. And so we probably should talk about them separately. One is the relationship with your ex, and the other is the relationship that you would have with your children. And your ex would have with, with the children as well, though you have less control over that. Um, even the relationship with your ex, you only have half the control over that, right? So anyone at any moment can decide to torpedo everything and everything's basically kaput. And that's what makes it very difficult sometimes. Um, the best category that we like to think of was created by a researcher years ago named Constance Ahrens, who talks about the different types of um, relationships that exes have with each other after they get divorced. And so kind of going down the lines from... Um, well, highest isn't the right word. You can see the highest isn't necessarily the best, but from the most overlap in lives is, is what she called perfect pals. And I, I love that term. And these are couples that were best friends before, or you know, they did all this stuff before they got divorced. And after they got divorced, they continue to kind of have this relationship that they are very close with each other. They would consider each other friends. They turn to each other for emotional support. Um, they try to, you know, they discuss their new relationships with each other and so forth. This is a fairly rare circumstance, say, only about 15%. That really well, far-fetched. In many I wish, well, it's, <laughs> listeners, I wish you could have saw the look on Janet's eyes. Like she's letting <laughs> Patrick talk and she's like, okay, this is very unrealistic for most of us. <laughs> well, about, about at the very beginning, about 15% of couples fall into this category, but within five years, it drops to about 5%. So it's hard to maintain. And 
Janet's skepticism, it's real, but your skepticism about it being useful, which I'm guessing was a lot of it, is, is totally valid. Because one thing that the researchers found is people who maintained a perfect power relationship, actually in this one study, none of them were able to create a new relationship because it's hard to create a new, as you might imagine, just when you bring a new partner in, you're like, oh, this is my ex and she's my best friend or he's my best friend. It creates a lot of issues. So perfect pals, it sounds like charming, but it ends up probably not being the best um, type of relationship to have with your ex. Kind of going down on life overlap, our collective colleagues is what what, uh, she calls them. Again, I love this kind of terminology. Mm -hmm. This is probably the most common one. It's about 40%. And what collective colleagues are, they're basically better thought of as coworkers. They approach it as a job, essentially. And so you see this often with children that, okay, we got to make a decision about, you know, is the child going to get braces? Let's discuss this like as much as you can, like as if it was a coworker. So you're trying not to make it emotional. You're dealing with whatever the project is. Now, this doesn't mean collective colleagues don't fight. They fight all the time and so forth. Obviously, there's baggage and so forth. But generally, they're able to avoid making it personal. They might fight about the braces itself, but they're not going to fight about what had caused the divorce or underlying issues. Again, that does happen sometimes, but generally the relationship is kind of defined by these coworker type relationships. Moving on down to the next levels, uh, you have what they call angry associates and fiery foes. You might imagine what those are. <laughs> those are people that still have contact with each other, but they basically just fight all the time. So it's just different levels of fighting. About 30% fall into this category after divorce. And the final one are divorce duos. And, the, or, or, and these are just people that have completely gone their own ways. It's almost like when you're younger, perhaps, and you're dating somebody and you broke up and you just, all right, bye, you know, have a good life. And you just kind of don't think about it. So most divorce duos don't have children. Again, some do. Yeah. But most Easier to pull off if you don't have a child that, and Janet, as you well know, like your child getting to 18, guess what? That does not end your connection because <laughs> it's still the same human weddings anniversaries, um, grandchildren, exactly. Once you have created a child with somebody, you are kind of stuck together, whether you're still married or not. Yeah, no, and that's very true. And so that's why it is so important to try to push towards that collective colleagues relationship as soon as you can. And again, it's not all up to you. So if you don't have a collective colleague relationship with your ex, it might not be your fault. So let's talk about that because we got a lot of listeners going, yeah, sounds great, but, you know, and enter all the things that some of us have thought about our exes. Some of us have experienced with our exes. Some of us have exes saying about us if they ever listen to this, right? (laughs) So I think we can all agree that that collective colleague thing, boy, that sounds great. (laughs) I can only control my part. So, uh, a term that came into my mind, I I often heard about co-parenting, right? And this should be the ideal where we discuss things like, are we getting braces for the kid or how to handle an issue with like, uh, say a child's motivation in school or failing grades or whatever. And sometimes there is personality differences, major differences in parenting styles. And so it ends up being in my head, uh, the term I've used is more similar to like, I call it parallel parenting, like parallel play where we're each doing our own thing because that's all we can control. And hopefully it turns out in the end. I like cute clothes. I like having stylish outfits and I hate shopping. 
armoire makes getting dressed easier. Armoire is a clothing rental membership option. And Janet and I recently have both tried it out. And you guys, it is so much fun. You go to their website, you get to take a little quick style quiz, takes five minutes, and then you get presented a list of beautiful clothing, pictures, wonderful clothes that you can pick out and get delivered to your house for you to try and wear in the comfort of your own home without going out and determine what looks cute, put together outfits without investing a ton of money. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off your first month. That is up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash envoys. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E, dot style slash envoys to get 50% off your first month and never have to worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. One of the most challenging things about being a woman at midlife is realizing how little people understand about perimenopause and menopause, Janet. I just had a conversation with my sister about that this weekend. She is 10 years younger than me, so I'm 51, she's 41, and she went to ask her healthcare provider, hey, can you provide me some information? And she got information, but she was frustrated by how incomplete it seems, how little we know, and how for way too many people, the answer seems to be, yep, that's the way it is. Deal with it. Mm-hmm. Deal with it. And not only are our mamas out there having to deal with perimenopause, likely at this age, but many of our moms are dealing with their sons entering or in puberty, which is kind of nature's irony, which is, oof. Cruel joke, it's, Janet. Cruel joke. Cruel joke. Thankfully, thankfully, Increasingly, there are those who are recognizing that women need and deserve competent care and treatment for perimenopause and menopausal symptoms. And we know that can still be harder to access than it should be, which is why we have partnered with Winona. Winona helps women who are dealing with menopause or perimenopause. Winona is a collection of OBGYN health professionals who believe that your symptoms are important, real, and deserve to be taken seriously. Telehealth, you can access care from your home when it is convenient for you. Visit buywinona.com today to start your free visit. With free U.S. shipping and the ability to pause or cancel at any time, your path to wellness has zero obligations. Use the code ONBOYS at buywinona.com for 25% off your first order. That's B-Y-W-I-N-O-N-A dot com slash ONBOYS. Winona, menopause care made easy. Yeah, no, that certainly happens a lot. That and that's in some ways that's okay. There's nothing wrong with kind of everyone doing their own thing at their own house as long as there's not 
the issue you get into is when children are especially younger is if you have dramatically different rules at different houses, that that's where issues really um, come about in terms of conflict. Um, but you're right. There's, there's not much you can do about a partner who's, who's hell bent essentially on being an angry associate that there's not much you can do about it. The, the best we can do, and this is painful to say is we have to be the better person. And I'm not saying that, that we're, that they're not wrong sometimes. Right. I mean, and they probably think the same thing about us. I'm sure that they think that, that, that we're wrong sometimes. Uh, but I know I'm, I, I'm not wrong as much as she is, but anyways, but no, I mean, again, and we all know that right? again, I tease, but we all, we all, that's, and that is one of the issues is, is most parents, even though we sometimes are, Oh, this person, uh, usually they, they also think the same thing about, the other person when we ask parents about each other so for example we ask parents do you think you're a good parent about 80 percent say i'm a good parent then we say why do you what do you think about your ex do you think they're a good parent? only about 40 percent say they're exes but when we ask the ex the same question they say the same thing they say 80 percent us and 40 percent them so someone's wrong right so not everybody can be right in this situation so again we all like to think that we're the ones that are in the right and our partners are in the wrong and maybe we are maybe we're not maybe it's a mixture of both but again the only thing we can do is control our own behaviors and so again that's trying to be kind of the better person if you will and so a lot of that involves with how you are going to argue with your ex so trying to avoid fighting but you know but how are you going to argue and there's this uh, a research team, John Gottman came up with this idea that he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which are, you know, these ways that are basically going to doom a relationship. And, and he created them for keeping marriages together, but it applies in every kind of social interaction. And so it's basically avoiding criticism, avoiding contempt, not being overly defensive and not using what he calls escapism, like just saying, like, I'm out of here. I don't want to talk about this and just leaving, essentially. And so if you can try to avoid doing that as much as possible, even if your partner's doing that, you will hopefully eventually over time move to that collective call. Again, it might not ever happen because you, as, as you said, you don't have complete control over it, but it's really the best you can do to try to push that relationship. And if you can get it there, it'll be so much easier for you as, as a selfish way in the long run that, so it is worth sometimes eating a little bit of crow early on. If you think it might push it into the collective call. I'm not saying like you, you know, if somebody wants to do something dangerous with your children, you don't give in to it. But if it's a matter of, again, not saying something, not being overly defensive, not escaping, if, if the argument gets too heated, I like may just say, no, give me 15 minutes. I want to talk about this in 15 minutes. Let me cool down. That's okay. But you don't leave. And again, it's the idea of trying to push that relationship with your ex to this kind of collective colleague state. Well, and there's also in all of that, which is brilliant, is, you know, our kids are watching us. Our kids are watching how we're handling these negotiations and our own self-management around all of this. So it's a great teaching opportunity. Sorry, but there it is. I, I'm thinking about the divorced moms out there who are raising boys and who have, you know, this, this ex that is maybe he's involved, maybe not, maybe he's not such a great role model. What would you say to those moms? How do we keep our boys connected to their dads, even if maybe their dad isn't exactly the upright human being we would 
wish him to be, which is likely why we're divorced, right? But wanting to have that relationship. Generally, you want to try to avoid talking poorly about the partner. Generally, again, obviously there are there are extremes where this will break down. So, but generally talking poorly about the partner, even if you're right, tends not to go well for the children, that it tends to make the children feel like they have an alliance with one parent and not the other. They start to self-blame. We start to see anxiety and so forth. And again, I want to be very clear. I'm talking about generally. There are times that like if a parent was doing something really dangerous or something along those lines, this is a very different thing than like, you know, dad is, I don't know what, what would be a, like, I wish he wouldn't be bungee jumping all the time. Like, you know, you wouldn't, you, I know that's a silly example, but like something along those lines that, that you may morally disapprove of, although I don't know why you morally disapprove of bungee jumping, but maybe you morally disapprove of, but it's not necessarily dangerous and it's not necessarily directly impacting the children that it's usually a good idea not to talk poorly about the other parent. And it's hard. Like, again, being a divorcee myself, I understand it's hard, right? We want our children to see our standpoint and our point of view. And sometimes we think in the back ahead, maybe my ex is talking about me to them and I want them to know my side of this thing. It's really, really hard. But again, we have to try to be the better person because at the end of the day, what we care about most is, you know, our sanity and also the children kind of coming through everything as happily as they, they can. And so that tends to, on average, be the thing that's the best thing to do is not to talk too poorly about your ex. One thing that I had to remind myself and still more than 10 years later have to remind myself is I'm not a perfect person and neither is their dad. And so certainly, especially when it comes to things like masculinity, right? We talk about masculinity on this podcast and how to raise boys who become um, compassionate, caring, open to their emotions, um, not trapped in this, you know, small definition of being a man. And I know this comes up for a lot of our listeners, like, well, dad is this way, and I don't want my boy to be this way. You're not going to change your ex. He cares about your kids just as much as you do. And at least being in different houses, like I can control what I say in this house and I can present a different point of view easier, not, not talking bad about their dad, but I'm talking about like talking about social issues or, or how to be as a person or dealing with emotions. I have more freedom to do that than if we were in the same house. And I have to remind myself of that. And I also have to remind myself that a caring, loving person in my children's lives does not have to be perfect to be a positive in their lives. Take it away from divorce, take it away from co-parenting. Many of us have parents who may be elderly now, who may hold some prejudiced views that were quite common when they were coming up. And that's not what we wanna teach our kids, but we don't necessarily keep our kids from interacting with grandma and grandpa. Grandma and grandpa are still caring presences in their lives. And I have to sort of use that conceptualization sometimes to, to deal with, no, my ex is not a perfect person. I'm not either. The contact they have with him is still extremely valuable and important to them. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, that I think you nailed it perfectly, that the notion, which is a super important point, that the two households are presenting two different points of view 
is so important that your voice isn't being muted simply because there's another voice in another house. Now, again, this might break down at some point, but generally I, you, I think you, you nailed it exactly that. And, you know, one of the interesting things is other than being two households, a lot of these issues that we're talking about are issues that we had when we were married that, again, we talk about different parenting styles, different, all these things, arguing, collective colleagues, you know, angry associates, that certainly could be used to describe couples that are together. And that's another thing important to remember is the impact of parental relationships on the adjustment of children after divorce isn't any different than the impact of parental relationships on the adjustment of kids and married couples. And so, it's not necessarily a special thing for divorce other than the uniqueness of there being two households and potentially four parental units in their lives or sometimes more depending on, on situations. But it's, it simply still comes down to our interactions with each other matter to our kids. That's such a good point because I have often since I've been divorced bristled at this idea that somehow, you know, both parents being in the same house is this idyllic norm for our children. It depends. If the parents are getting along and can can work together, sure, great. But if they can't, Janet, if you and your ex are both able to thrive and be yourselves better being in different houses, I don't think that's a terrible thing for your children. I don't think it's a terrible thing for mine and probably not for yours, Patrick. Well, they're so much better off because the stress of the household and of the pretending and the trying to make everything okay in the years up to the up to the final divorce, you know, there's all that stuff happening and the undercurrents. And I want to talk about the self-blame. How do we support our kids of all ages? And, you know, every, every child has a different temperament and a different sensitivity. And it may be outwardly, we know that, you know, they're saying, oh, this is all my fault or the more subtle, like inwardly, how do we even know that they're taking this on in some deep way where they'll be in therapy? I always told my kids, you'll be in therapy anyway. So, you know, add this to the list, but what can parents be on the lookout for? And this is the part that sucks. You do not want to end the show on this on self-blame. Um, that, <laughs> okay, we won't. <laughs> that, that, that what research shows is about 50% of kids blame themselves for their parents' divorce. And that's right after the divorce. And after about two years, it drops to about 20%. So it's still one in eight kids. That's, that's not a tiny number. And the extra sucky part of this is parents have no idea if it's their kids that when, when parents are asked if their kids blame themselves and then the same kids are asked if they blame themselves, there's almost no relationship between the two. So we may think, Oh, my kid doesn't blame himself. Or we might think the other way, my kid does blame himself and we might be totally wrong. And so it's hard. And it's even harder the older the kids are older kids are better at hiding that feeling of self blame. If they blame themselves, they understand that they don't want to make mom or dad feel worse. And cause they understand that, but, Younger kids, it might be easier to pick up on. Unfortunately, other than just consistently telling your child, essentially, it's not your fault and stuff like that, after they blame themselves, there's not a lot you can do other than just consistently reminding them that it's not their fault and things of that sort. Leading up to the divorce, you know, again, one of the biggest things that has been a predictor of self-blame, so this is before the separation, is not taking your kid, not making your kid an ally on your side when you're fighting. Mm. And so we we found that we other researchers have found that when children are or when parents, you know, 
take their kid as an ally. Like, oh, you know, your mom doesn't want to do this, but I want to do that. And da 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 da. You know, what do you think? Da da da. That the kid takes on part of that responsibility of that relationship at that moment because they're an ally, or they're being trying to recruit as an ally on one side or the other. And then when their relationship breaks up, they blame themselves that they couldn't keep it together because they were part of it suddenly. Mm-hmm. And so it's better to not not to try to kind of sneak around your ex, your, well, your partner at the time's back to try to make a child an ally, that that tends to lead to self-blame. But again, once they blame themselves, other than kind of trying to give that constant reinforcement of it's not, not their fault, you know, mom and dad love each other still, but we just could like all that, those kind of types of, of statements that you make, make to children and to others, um, there's not a lot you can do about it, at least that we know of. We've been talking quite generally, which is helpful. But I know that uh, you have been divorced. You are in a new relationship. You have a teenage son from your first marriage. You have a toddler son from your second marriage. Talk about your teenage son, uh, how old he was when you went through that divorce. And, you know, what was this process of helping him cope with it like? Because for me, much easier to talk about this generally, uh, much harder to deal with it in the practical. This is what's happening in my home. Yeah. Um, I also have a teen daughter that that's a year behind my son. My son right now is 16. My daughter's, um, well, he's, my son's about to turn 16 in just a little while. Um, so I, and I have a two-year-old too. So I have the, the whole range of ages right now. When my ex and I went, and again, you're, you're absolutely right. This is our story and everyone's story is a little bit different. And I'm very fortunate in that my ex and I, when we decided to tell our children that we were getting divorced, we were both on board with trying to be as calm as possible to tell them why we were getting divorced. Um, They didn't see it coming. As a personal level, I didn't see it coming like so. But, you know, we worked through. It was hard for both of us. And we kind of... How old were your kids at that point in time when you made this? My son would have been about nine or so. Take a year. I'm not very good at math. Um, and so telling them was for me the, the scariest moment of my life. I remember my ex and I went upstairs and we were like, oh my gosh, we got to do this. And we went downstairs and we told them uh, that, you know, mom and dad love each other. We love you, but we just can't blah, blah, blah. Um, and what blew my mind is I was very lucky at that time. Both kids were just like, okay. And it was very surprising to me. Uh, I mean, we got a, uh, their, their mom moved to a house that was basically across the street. There's one block away. Uh, we're close to where she lives now. Um, so we're like, mom's going to move here and, you know, and you're going to go there. We have 50, 50 custody. So they're at each of our houses half the time and you're going to be with your sister. So they had each other and we tried to keep everything as, as, as normal as possible. Again, I was fortunate in that I had a really good partner to kind of go through this divorce, the divorce, which sounds funny, but I, I was lucky in that regard. Um, what killed me the most, though, at the time was I remember like we were getting through it and it seemed like everything was OK. And then my son asked me, oh, but we're still going to go on family vacations together. And it's like this the a question of an innocent kid who like I never thought about that. Like I had never thought like no more trips. You know, that was not on my forefront. And when he said that, it was like, oh no, like, and you know, the talent. yeah, because it was such an innocent question. Um, I was so ready for tears, but it wasn't that. And so, you know, if we told them like, no, we wouldn't be able to go on together, but, but it was hard. I mean, it, as it got older, new challenges came 
up each time. Um, I think probably our most difficult time has been recently with COVID that, you know, I'm sure it's hard in just in just uh, traditional households dealing with COVID with everyone, different opinions on safety levels and masks, no mask, all this kind of stuff. And now we have four parental figures who everyone has, I think, and everyone's very smart. Like everyone has great ideas. Everyone, I respect their, their, their ideas, but you know, everyone's different. And so that I think has been as far as our, our unit for the kids too, has been really difficult. Again, it's difficult in traditional families, but I do feel like with two households during COVID it's unique in that you're stuck, right? So if one household wants to be safer than the other household, almost by default, you're deferring to the unsafer household. Yep. So, and it's tough. And and also, you know, on a, on a personal level, like, I don't know what the right answers are in some of these things. Like sometimes I'm very moralistic and, oh, I know this is the right thing, but on this, I sometimes don't know what the right answers are. So it's hard to, to juggle all that stuff. And I think all of us, I mean, actually the kids have four psychologists as parental units, so maybe they're going to be messed up for sure. I don't know. You are poor children. (laughs) But yeah, truth is revealed. <laughs> so, so so we so we do like try to like work through everything and all that stuff. But it it was this I think was for me at least, and I think for the children was probably the hardest time that they've had. And also they're you know turning fifteen and sixteen, so that's also that's going to be hard. Period. <laughs> in a normal world, the knife to the heart moment for me was um, there was about a week delay between yes, we are separating, going to be in different houses. And we need to tell the kids and we agreed to do that together. But there were some logistics on timing, you know, getting everybody together. So I knew this was happening before my kids knew it was happening. And there was this moment where I took the kids to uh, see a singing and dancing group perform. And Janet, it's the group that later on, Nathan, my oldest, became a part of. But at this point, he's 11, right? He was glowing. He was little enough that, you know, he managed to work his way, way up to the front and he was so happy. And I just remember looking at him and being like, I'm about to destroy your world. That was my knife to the heart moment. I'm tearing up talking about it because I still hate that I, I guess I still self-blame. I hate that I had to inflict that pain on my children. And I know that's not the true story. This was, this is just the path that, that we took. None of our paths in life are easy. None of them are uncomplicated. Listeners, as you know, sometimes I use this podcast for my own therapy. And uh, I got a <laughs> I'm psychologist getting you a here. tissue, Jen. Right? Getting you a so, tissue here. One yeah. of my big challenges as the children have gotten older is they're all fine, but they have a very jaded view of relationships. And like, why would you ever do that to yourself? Now, of course, there are also young humans who are attracted to other young humans. So there's that. How do we help our children navigate relationships can be a good thing when they have seen firsthand relationships can be a pretty shitty thing. On average, we're talking about not a major effect on later relationships. So, so people that, so again, this is on, and again, it doesn't mean that in individual cases, it might have an impact or anything on those lines, but we have to remember that at ages that we're talking about with our children, young adults and the teens and so forth, it's a hard time to have relationships, even if you came from the most generic leave it to beaver type of family that, so, I mean, we have, we have to keep that in mind. 
parents often complain about social media with their kids and so forth nowadays because their kids are turning 16, say, and they're on social media. They're like, oh my gosh, my kid's crazy. They're on so, but they probably would have been crazy if they weren't on social media. Like they're 16, that's what's going to happen. And it's the same thing with relationships that, that you tend to often find this. And uh, what we end up doing often is we make these kind of false correlations. Like we'll say, oh, my kid's having trouble with relationships. You know what? I was divorced. I bet that's why. Whereas if your kid was having trouble with relationships and you're in a happier relationship or you're married and they weren't divorced, you probably would never have thought like, oh, that's why or something. Like, so we tend to point out when the kid's having trouble and their parents are divorced, oh, it's probably because of that. But when they're having trouble, but their parents aren't divorced, we don't say anything about their parental uh, uh, relationships. Um, so that being said, there, it's probably not a giant concern on average. But the one thing you could do is if you wanted to try to take a proactive thing and you were really worried about it would be just to modeling relationships later on for children. So, again, I mean, especially when they're very young, um, that they're going to learn by seeing what you do very often. And so if they see you say, and I'm not saying you start a relationship with another person just to model this for a child. (laughs) But if you do start another relationship with another person, which could be a whole episode on itself of how to introduce a new new partner to to a, a thing. Uh, to a thing, to a child, uh, <laughs> um, uh, that you just try to do it very slowly. You try to show that the relationship, you know, you're not hiding the, the pimples of a relationship, but you're trying to show that the relationship, you know, can be loving, that there can be love in, in the household. And again, even with your ex, depending on the relationship you have with your ex, they will pick up on that relationship you have with your ex. So this is, again, another argument to try to push for that uh, collaborative colleagues because it'll, again, show them how to have a relationship, even with a person that you're divorced with, that it could be a, a healthy relationship still. That is such excellent and reassuring advice. And thank you, because I have to remind myself, you know, my parents, they've been married 50 plus years now. Guess what, Patrick? It's not a good relationship not one that we should be role modeling. Um, So being married doesn't necessarily mean that your kids are learning great things about relationships. Being divorced doesn't mean that they're learning bad things about relationships. Um, You and your wife, your relationship researchers, this is your professional area of expertise. Doesn't mean you don't struggle with it in the real world personally. You want to hear something else? My ex-wife and I were relationship researchers too. Apparently I kind of suck at my job. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, we're a whole bunch of relationship researchers here who have between all of us, I think we have four divorces or three divorces. I'm not sure if I add them all up. Uh, yeah, no. So, so, so human first. Human yeah, first. Well, some, and sometimes all. psychologists study the things that they um, are not good at. So <laughs> it might be a little bit of me search in some of this uh, research that we do. You know, you mentioned COVID before, and certainly the last year, year plus going on two years has been so challenging for all of us. We have learned collectively uh, shit happens that we utterly cannot control and resilience is the key. This is true for so many things in life, whether we're talking about health challenges, education, relationships. And so as unpleasant as the experience of divorce can be for individuals and for a family, it is a great learning opportunity to practice things like resilience, to demonstrate that uh, compassion, care. There's a lot of opportunity for growth. And if you are going through a divorce at the moment and you're in the early stages, I know you probably want to throw something at me right now. 
go ahead, get angry, throw things away from your children, deal with it because it sucks. But there is potential for life and happiness and more happiness than you can imagine when you're going through it on the other side. I thought you were going to say, and get the book. Oh, yeah. And get the book. <laughs> eh, maybe. <laughs> no. Patrick, tell us about your book. Oh, um, well, the, I mean, the book covers a lot of what we've talked about here, so you don't really need to get it. We covered most oh. of it, so we're done. No, no the your book, publishers are not going to like that, <laughs> right? You the, suck at selling books. The, the book covers from getting, from kind of piecing yourself back together personally, to dating again, to with children, with stepchildren, with finding new love and all that kind of stuff, and sex again with new people. Everything that was terrifying at one moment for people who have been divorcees, uh, we tried to distill it in the book. And it's written because Erica, my, my wife, who wrote the book with, when we found ourselves divorced, I mean, the average marriage is about eight years before they get divorced. And usually they were together for a couple of years. So most people had not have not been dating for at least a decade before they suddenly find themselves on the market again. And the market has changed considerably. Most likely before you were married, there wasn't as much online dating as there is now. And now that's pretty much exclusively what you're going to do. The etiquette, the rules of dating, all that kind of stuff we try to cover in the book. So it's kind of a, a I hate to say self-help, but it's kind of a self-help book. It is a self-help book on how to kind of piece yourself back together um, after everything implodes from a divorce um, and try to keep your sanity. I want to encourage our listeners that piecing yourself back together first is really step one to helping your children. You have to take care of yourself to be able to help your children. If you have uh, additional questions about, you know, divorce, feel free to send them to us, leave us comments, share your stories with us. Uh, Janet and I have walked this road and we'll do our best we can to support you. And buy the book. <laughs> You're fantastic. <laughs> I'm going to give this as gifts to people. Happy divorce. But seriously, this is the book that you want while you are going through this shitty time in your life. And just knowing that you're not alone and that others have done it and survived and this information can help me, that's key to thriving in the end. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experience with us today. Thank you for having me. Dear listeners, we know that you might be in the middle of divorce or contemplating divorce or recovering from divorce and moving on. And as we said, for some kids, no problem. For some kids, it is. So if you feel like you're in overwhelm and you're struggling, you know that you can always get on the phone with me, schedule a free breakthrough session. We'll get on the phone, figure out where you are and where you want to be and how I can help you get there. Go to boysalive.com slash call and schedule your free appointment with me there. And don't forget, we all need vitamins. Haya Health has the well-formulated vitamin for your son's nutritional needs. Go to hayahealth.com and use the onboys code at checkout to receive your discount. Again, listeners, we are here for you. Jen and I support you completely. If you like this podcast, if it was helpful, please share with a friend. 
Thanks for joining us. This is On Boys Parenting Podcast. I am your co-host, Janet Allison of boysalive.com and Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.